If you have your Bibles with, with you this morning, I want you to go ahead and open them to, to Mark, uh, the 14th chapter, Mark chapter 14. We're going to be reading in a few moments, verses 32 through 36, and then we're going to read verses 15, or chapter 15, uh, verses 1 through 15, in a message entitled, The Cup of Christ. Again, Mark chapter 14, we'll pick up in verse 32 in just a moment. I said, I can't tell you how blessed I feel to be standing uh, here. This church has such a rich history. I've, I've followed the ministry. I was uh, friends with, still am, with uh, uh, Stanley Hughes, uh, just a dear, dear man. I always say, you, you look up the word humility in the Bible, and there's a picture of Stanley right there. Just a wonderful teacher of, of, of God's word, and just a... And I didn't know your previous pastor, but I, just to stand here, it's, it's, it's a humbling experience for me as well to have the opportunity to open the Word and share the truth that it contains. And if it's okay with you, I, I'm just going to jump right in this morning. I don't want to waste a second of time that we have to, rich, to look at this rich and, and powerful uh, and, and deep passage. Today I want us to consider the passion of our Savior from Gethsemane to Calvary. And I want you to see that in the garden we see... A transformation take place with our Lord that's so startling, so sorrowful that it, that it shocks us to the core of our soul. And these are moments, all the moments of His passion are moments that should grab us with their significance. They should stir deeply our emotions. But to help us see clearly this transformation of which I'm speaking, I, I think it'd be good for us to just review for a moment the ministry of Jesus in these three years leading up to these moments there at Gethsemane and Calvary. When we allow ourselves to walk with Him through those three powerful years, we see one thing overall. He is absolutely in charge of every situation that He encounters. We easily recall Jesus reaching out time and again with, with one tender touch after another, offering uh, comfort, offering healing, forgiveness, with mercy, with hope. We, we see his arms outstretched with power as he, as he raises the dead, as he gives sight to the blind, as he casts out demons. We, we see him striding serenely on the surface of a violent sea one night before he calms those waves and, and, and that wind. We see him seated in a little fishing boat before a shoreline packed with adoring crowds who are just awed and astounded at his wisdom and, and his teaching, unlike anything they've ever heard before. We see a grassy hillside, and on that grassy hillside, we, we recognize genuine gratitude on his face as he looks up to the heaven and blesses the loaves and the fish and we can easily imagine a little smile creep upon his face as he watches astounded disciples hand out that bread and those fish to an equally astounded crowd of thousands. We see him transfigured on a Judean mountaintop as he meets with Moses and Elijah, and we hear his father's voice speak from a cloud, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Then there in Jerusalem in the crowded temple courts were awed and, and amazed as he stands up to the religious establishment of the day and confronts their hypocrisy without a hint of hesitation or fear. We watch as he fashions a whip, you recall, and, and chases out the money changers and those selling animals for sacrifice. We see him bold and brave. We see him wise and wonderful. We see him calm and collected. We see him kind and compassionate. 
And it's true that we also see him overwhelmed with grief as he weeps at the tomb of his dear friend Lazarus. But all those moments are so, so very different from the garden, from the utterly unimaginable torment that we see overtaking him right now. That the anguish he is enduring there under the, these moonlit branches of the garden's olive trees is something we've not seen in our Savior before. I suggest to you that there comes a moment there comes a moment as we follow him into a place called Gethsemane that we see a Jesus with whom we are utterly unfamiliar. And it's a bit foreign and it's a bit frightening. We're going to read verses 32 through 36 in Mark chapter 14 and then we'll go ahead to chapter 15 and read verses 1 through 15. I don't know if you guys stand in honor of the reading of God's word, but I would invite you, you, you to do that today. I need these for the small print here. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. Again, we're at verse 32 of chapter 14. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going on a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And then turn ahead to chapter 15, verse 1. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate asked him, again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we read and reflect upon this text and it's so familiar to us. I pray today, Father, that you would give us just a fresh awakening and a revitalization of our understanding of the passion that our Savior endured on our behalf. On our behalf. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. So here we see Jesus just before his execution open his heart to his disciples. He opens his heart to his father. 
And he opens his heart to us, really. He reveals his struggle, his agony, his fears. Struggle, agony, and fears that, that we've not seen in Jesus before this moment. Struggle, agony, and fears about all that lay before him. He turns to his father and he pleads, Is there a way this cup can be taken from me? In other words, is there any other way we can do this, Father? Again, after this point, Jesus has always been in charge, completely in control. He seems to have always been, you know, one step ahead of, of whatever was happening. Nothing seemed to shake him. But then we read, he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. So here, for the first time of which we're aware, it seems Jesus sees something realizes something, experiences something that absolutely overwhelms him and is so heavy and horrifying that he's more deeply distressed, distressed than we've ever seen him to this point. Each of us can reflect upon moments in our life when, when horrific news has been suddenly thrust upon us. We've, we've gotten that phone call, heard that knock at the door in the middle of the night, and in those initial heart-rending moments, we, we felt the sweeping, debilitating, shocking horror rise up in our throats and almost choke the life out of us. And, and I imagine that must be something like what Jesus experienced, if only minutely. He then told His disciples, My soul is very sorrowful, overwhelmed with sorrow, even to the point of death. Now, when we look at Jesus' death, his struggle here, it's, it's not only unique in the ancient accounts of the death of prominent figures, but when it comes to church history, it's unique in critical ways. And by that I mean we have a, a lot of true accounts of, of Christian men and women being martyred for their felt faith, killed for their faith, whether it was thrown to wild animals or, or sawn in half or, or, or burned at the stake. And we see how they face that with such such pride and such, such strength. And on the surface, it may appear that some of them faced their death more calmly than did Jesus his. But listen, Jesus was facing something that those brave martyrs were not facing, something which no one in recorded history has ever had to deal with. Something happened. Something happened in the garden. Jesus saw something, felt something, experienced something, sensed something, and it shook the unshakable Son of God. Now, what was it? He was facing something far beyond physical torment, even beyond physical death, something so much worse, the pain and death were trivial by comparison. You might ask, well, didn't he know he was going to die? Well, of course he knew he was going to die. We're not talking about knowledge here. We know that many times Jesus told his disciples, I'm going to Jerusalem to die. Timothy Keller writes, he was beginning to taste what he would experience on the cross, and it went far beyond physical torture and death. Now, what is it? What is this awful thing? We see it right here in the middle of his prayer. Look at verse 36. He says, remove this cup from me. Now, you're probably aware that in Hebrew Scriptures, the cup is a metaphor for the wrath of God poured out upon human evil. It's an image of divine justice meted out upon human injustice. We read in Ezekiel chapter 23, verses 32 through 34, God speaking, You will drink a cup large and deep, the cup of ruin and desolation, and tear your breasts. 
And in Isaiah 51, verse 22, God speaks of the cup that made you stagger, the goblet of my wrath. All of his life, because of his oneness with God the Father and his oneness with God the Holy Spirit, whenever Jesus turned to the Father, the Spirit flooded him with love. One, one writer said of his connection with the Father, what happened visibly and audibly at his baptism and his transfiguration happened invisibly and inaudibly every time he prayed. But, but here, in the garden, praying alone to the Father, he turns to him, and all he can see before him is this cup filled with divine wrath. In God's presence, we see love and light, light and wisdom, peace and joy. Apart from God, we see only loneliness and, and lovelessness, confusion, chaos. And worst of all, for those apart from God, the brutal and hopeless finality of death. As we see and hear Jesus in the garden, we see Him experiencing a foretaste of what it would mean for Him to be utterly forsaken by His Father. And it horrified Him. It crushed Him. And as the text reveals, it overwhelmed Him. When He turns to Peter and James and John and tells them, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. This is not hyperbole that Jesus often used when He taught. He means this. Literally, this could not be more real. Luke tells us He sweat, literally sweat drops of blood. The sorrow in our Savior's soul at this moment is so powerful, so pronounced that He actually draws near to dying in His human experience in these moments before His actual death on the cross. Jesus asks these three disciples to wait and watch while he goes on ahead to pray. And he steps a short distance beyond them. He staggers and, and falls to the ground under the horrendous burden he's carrying. And that burden is that on the cross, he would undeservedly and unreservedly suffer the righteous wrath of his Father. He would be utterly abandoned by his Father. He would experience something he had never known before. Now, as we follow Jesus into the garden to observe, we, we have to realize that what transpired there is, is really far beyond our ability to totally comprehend. We can't fathom this, truly. There's a verse from an old hymn that speaks well to this. Oh, help me to understand it. Help me to take it in. What it means to thee, the Holy One, to bear away my sin. We can only begin to understand what bearing away our sin meant to Jesus if, of course, the Holy Spirit helps us to understand. The Holy Spirit must help us if we're even just to get a glimpse of what it means to, to take it in, to absorb what bearing away our sin meant to Jesus, the Holy One. But the reality is that we can never fully comprehend it. Our only hope as we contemplate the passion of our Lord is that we might understand just a fraction of what it meant for Him to be the propitiation for our sins. So what Jesus struggles with here is it's not the fear of physical pain that comes with the torture, with the scourging, with the crucifixion itself. No, it's a, it's a pain greater beyond comparison. It's the pain of being utterly abandoned by His Father. Commentator William Lane notes, Jesus entered the garden to be with his father for an interlude before his betrayal, but found hell rather than heaven open before him. 
He goes on, the cross and his death are fast approaching, and Jesus has come to the garden in need as never before of his Father's comfort and strength. What he finds instead is the hell of utter separation from his Father. We we hear Jesus cry out, Father, is there an alternative? Is there any other way? Can, Can we avoid this? Is there a way this cup could pass from me? Would you please provide it for me? And then comes the answer. Silence. Jesus seems to receive no answer to this passionate entreaty. Then a second time, he pleads for an alternative to that horror of abandonment by his father. And if such an alternative existed, surely the father would provide it. But again, the obedient son's plea is met with silence. Why? Perhaps we can paraphrase a familiar verse to us here. And I want you to try as best you can to listen as if for the very first time. For God so loved the world that he is silent as his son pours out his heart. This is what bearing our sin meant to Jesus. His soul overwhelmed with sorrow as as he's faced with his father totally abandoning him on the cross as he receives the full wrath of his father on the cross a sorrow and an abandonment and a wrath and a sacrifice such as we could never hope to fully comprehend we can never fully know beloved his agony his pain or listen church family his love for us In this, our Savior's darkest, most painful hour, do you see how much He loves you? Listen again to those precious and powerful words we hear Jesus repeat to His Father. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Yet not what I will, but what you will, Father. Jesus saying, Father, if it is your will, I'll drink this cup. I will. I'll drink it all. And he did. He drank every drop of it. And this is so precious and so powerful. But know this too, believer. He not only drank every cup of God's wrath meant for you and me. It's empty. There's none left for us. But because he drank that cup, we have in our hands another cup. The cup of salvation. And from this priceless cup, We are encouraged to drink and drink and drink and drink and drink to drink as much and as long as we like. For this cup will never run dry. It's always full. It's always overflowing. But understand this. The only reason we can drink from that cup is because Jesus spoke these words about another cup. Not what you will, but what I will. As we watch Jesus pray in agony in Gethsemane, we're so familiar with this. We, we've read it so often. You've heard countless sermons on this. You could probably preach this sermon. We, we, we have to fight, though, really, to prevent the power and passion from being largely lost on us. Let me ask you, church family, as you, as you consider His prayer in the garden, do you ever think that he has every right to turn to you and say, this is your cup. You're responsible for this. It's your sin. You drink it. 
And this cup should be our cup. It should by all rights be given to us. Yet Jesus takes this cup for you and me, which allows him to look at the, down at us from the cross and, and call out our names and say, I'll drink this cup for you, Scott. I'll drink this cup for you, Richard. Though you have lived in rebellion toward me, though you have despised me, though you have opposed me, despite everything you have done, I will drink this cup, all of this cup, for you. This is where a right understanding of the doctrine of sin becomes so important. When it comes to sin, too many of us, and I'm talking about too many of us believers, not those who have yet to believe, but too many of us believers have too light, too flippant, too impersonal of an attitude when it comes to sin, particularly our own personal sin. Our arrogance, our self-centeredness, our disobedience, our sin is what necessitated Jesus drinking our cup. Look, look, look do you see him? Do you see how he suffered? Behold the Lamb. Do you see how much He loves you? Again, the text shows us Jesus entering the garden and immediately began to be distressed, and greatly so. We can hardly imagine Him trembling so, His soul that deeply troubled. But, but when He exits the garden, when His time there is finished, there's no indication that He's any longer troubled or trembling. What we see instead is a composed and in-charge Jesus telling his disciples, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. My betrayer is at hand. And what made the difference? What accounts for this transformation? I suggest to you that it was only his obedience to the sovereign will of his Father. In Gethsemane, Jesus demonstrated what submission to the Father looks like through earnest, intense, willful submission to the plan of His Father, who offered no relief or rescue to His Son as to the cup and the cross, but in its place provided strength and resoluteness and peace to a submissive, obedient Son. We read in Luke's account of this scene that as Jesus finished the prayer there in the garden, there appeared an angel from heaven strengthening him, strength that would sustain Jesus in those hours of brutal torture that were soon to begin. We see in the following verses of Mark that a group of men armed with swords and clubs, a group led by the traitor Judas, arrives to arrest Jesus. And although Mark's account allows you and me to follow along as these men take Jesus away, his disciples, far from following, flee into the night. Shortly as Jesus is brought before Pilate, his abiding inner strength, it becomes evident to all as amazingly he remains silent in the face of these false accusations from the chief priests and elders. Pilate even asks Jesus, don't you have anything to say for yourself? Don't you hear all of these things of which they're accusing you? Yet Jesus is silent so that Pilate is amazed. Have you ever wondered why Jesus made no reply to his accusers? It seems that he could easily persuade Pilate. Pilate seems to have a modicum of respect for Jesus. I mean, he merely tolerates the Jewish leaders. He knows what motivates them. But, but surely Jesus, with all his wisdom and all his eloquence, could sway Pilate if he could just, if he'd just speak on his own behalf here. 
You and I, we're, we're prone. It's almost reflexive to take up for ourselves if, we're, if and when we come under personal attack. and we, we do it every day in the face of small charges that when it comes right down to it, don't even merit a response at all. And we're super quick to defend ourselves when someone has the gall to assault our reputation, our dignity, our sense of self-worth. Turning the other cheek sounds good in theory, but it's one of the hardest things to do in the real world. And I reflect upon the way that I have dealt with personal criticism in my life, and particularly in my ministry. I'm sadly ashamed that I've not more consistently followed the example of my Savior. He was falsely accused, tormented, ridiculed, tortured, while being totally innocent. You and I, even if the particular charges against us at a given moment are untrue, are certainly far from innocent, if the truth be known. Spurgeon puts it best. Brother, if any man thinks ill of you, do not be angry with him, for you are far worse than he thinks you to be. If he charges you falsely on some point, yet be satisfied, for if he knew you better, he might change the accusation, and you would be no gainer by the correction if you have your moral portrait painted and it is ugly, be satisfied, for it only needs a few blacker touches and it would be still nearer the truth. Listen, beloved saints, this is the hour for which Jesus was born and He knows that full well. He came into the world for this reason and there is absolutely no part of Him that resists the moment for which He left the glory of heaven in the first place. He was born as the God-man to die as our substitute. You, you and I know we're going to die. What we don't know is when. Often we don't know how. But Jesus knew when. He knew how. And most importantly, He knew why. As John Stott says, what dominated Jesus' mind wasn't so much the living of His life, but the giving of His life. This was our Savior's testimony. The Son of Man came to give His life as a ransom for many. So he offers no rebuttal to his accusers, no protest, no argument, and Pilate marveled at Jesus' silence. The governor then tries to help Jesus here by taking advantage of, of a Passover custom in which the authorities can free one prisoner whom the public most wants to see released. Pilate offers the gathered crowd a choice between Jesus and a notorious prisoner, a terrorist named Barabbas. Meanwhile, Matthew tells us that as Pilate is seated at the judgment seat, he receives this extraordinary message from his wife. You remember that. And we sneak a peek over his shoulder as he reads it, and we see that her note says she has suffered much in a dream about Jesus, and she tells her husband not to have anything to do with this righteous man. So here's clear support for the innocence of Jesus. She labels him a righteous man, further incentive for Pilate to let Jesus go. And while he's reflecting upon his wife's appeal, we, we, we can make our way into the crowd and we see the chief priest and the elders circulating among the people and urging everyone to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. Pilate puts away his wife's note and he stands and asks the throng, which of the two do you want me to release to you? All around us, the mob is fully incited by now. The chief priests have done their work, and they quickly cry, Barabbas! Then what shall I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? Matthew says the response from 
all of them is this. Let him be crucified. Why, Pilate asked, what evil has he done? Everywhere around us, the mob shouts all the more, let him be crucified. Luke emphasizes that the crowd was urgent, demanding, loud, and their voices prevailed. They become a force that Pilate can neither silence nor ignore. Now, with all the parties that we've mentioned and more in mind, you're familiar with the events of this dark day. With whom do you most identify? Of all the onlookers and participants in the scenes and the verses and the narratives surrounding the passion of Christ, whose actions are most like what you imagine yours would have been had you been there? Some of us might say Peter. We easily sympathize with him as he weeps bitterly in those pre-dawn hours under the weight of his three-time denial of Christ. For others, it might be Simon of Cyrene who was forced to carry the cross of Jesus. Others of us might identify with the women who were followers of Jesus who stood at a distance watching what was happening. Some of us might choose Mary. We like the idea of standing at the foot of the cross of Jesus as He's crucified. Or the disciple John who was also standing nearby and with whom Jesus actually spoke to from the cross. Or the penitent thief who on his own cross cried out to the Savior in faith, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Or the centurion who after watching how Jesus died was moved to say, truly this man was the Son of God. Listen, beloved, over the years, I've come to realize that I belong with none of those. I've come to understand that I most probably would have been among the angry mob shouting, crucify him. And I suggest to you, those are the ones with whom we should all most identify. I, I say that because apart from God's grace, we were living in enmity toward Him, Paul says. Apart from God's grace, this is where we would have all been standing and we're self-deceived to imagine otherwise. If we fail to acknowledge that crowd, that crowd of people who just a few days ago were, cry, were shouting, Hosanna, Son of David, save us. That crowd so ripe with hostility and hatred for the holy and innocent Lamb of God, unless we acknowledge that apart from the grace of God, that's us, that we're in the crowd, we're shouting, crucify Him, then we have failed to grasp the true nature, the unescapable seriousness of our sin, much less the necessity of the death of Jesus. Have you ever wondered what was going through Jesus' mind as he scanned the crowd and heard the cries for his crucifixion, and he can see you. He can hear your voice, even if you fail to acknowledge your presence and your voice. And we have an idea of what he's experiencing from the text. Listen to his response to the curses and cries for his death. Paul puts it best. He humbled himself and became obedient even unto death. The Scottish pastor Horatius Bonar, through his poetry, helps us realize our responsibility in the Savior's death sentence. He writes, "'Twas I that shed that sacred blood. I nailed him to the tree. 
I crucified the Christ of God. I joined the mockery. We will never understand the seriousness of our sin until we grasp that we were part of that mocking crowd until we understand that we are truly to blame for our Savior's death. Some are wondering why God would punish one who was totally innocent. Do you recall what was affixed to the top of the cross? You remember, it's official notice of a debt owed to Caesar. It was for all of those who were crucified, and it's there for everyone to see. But with Jesus' particular crucifixion, it read, right, the King of the Jews. You remember that. In those days, it was routine for everyone that was crucified to have a certificate of debt listing the crimes that they had committed against Caesar, crimes that demanded payment. And when the payment was complete, the court would cancel that debt with a single Greek word stamped across, across the parchment's face, tetelestai, tetelestai. But being king of the Jews was not the crime for which Jesus paid. Unseen to everyone but God the Father, there was another certificate of death affixed, as it were, to Christ's cross. As darkness overwhelmed Golgotha from noon, that's the sixth hour to three, the ninth hour, a divine transaction occurred. A divine transaction between God the Father and God the Son. And it meant that the full burden, every transgression, whether it be anger or murder or theft or a lustful thought, or actual adultery, every hidden sin, every modest display of pride, every horrendous evil deed, every sin by every blood-bought believer who ever lived, Jesus took upon Himself as if He were guilty of them all. When it comes right down to it, the cross was not what caused the death of our Savior. He, he did not die from exposure to the elements or exsanguination or suffocation. When the debt for our sin was paid in full, when the perfect justice of a holy and righteous God were fully satisfied, the Bible tells us that Jesus simply gave up His Spirit with a single word, tetelestai. It is finished. The divine transaction, the great exchange the full atonement for our sins was complete. The debt was paid in full. And Paul puts it this way. And you, that's us, beloved. Say, that's us. There you go. Say it like you mean it. That's us. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside. What did he do to it? What did he do to it? Nailed it to the cross. Before anyone could think this was an accident, listen, this was no accident. It was the fulfillment and prophecy of a prophecy and, and plan of the will of God from before time as we know it began. Isaiah, writing under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit, penned these words 700 years before, and you know it well. Surely he, was he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. 
But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah 53 verses 4 through 6. It was not possible, church family, that another could have accomplished this. Jesus alone, the, the perfect sinless Son of God, the Savior of the world, paid the debt so that whoever places their trust in Him will not perish under the judgment they deserve, but will experience forgiveness and life with Him fully and forever. Sinclair Ferguson has written that when we think of Jesus dying on the cross, we are shown the lengths to which God goes to win us back to Himself. Now listen to this next sentence. We would almost think that God loved us more than He loves His Son. We cannot measure love, such love, by any other standard. He's saying to you, I love you this much. Christ died for us. He stood in our place. He's borne our sins. He has, God has done something on the cross which we could never do for ourselves, but God does something to us as well as for us on the cross. He persuades us that He loves us. So I need to ask you this morning, are you persuaded? Are you persuaded? Is this not sufficient? God is saying, I crushed my son for you. Is there something more you think I could do for you in order to convince you of my love for you? I crushed him. I crushed him in order to convince you of my love for you. Are you persuaded? Listen, Spurgeon would say to us this morning that if we're not convinced of God's love for us, we would be wise to take time and dwell where the cries of Calvary can be heard. And we should take time often to dwell for just a moment or maybe for an extended, an extended period of time where the cries of Calvary can be heard so that we might be freshly affected by this astonishing, amazing grace. Let me ask you, how long has it been since you dwelt where the cries of Calvary can be heard? Let's go there for just a moment as we close. And for the purpose of concentration, I suggest to you that you close your eyes. And just for a moment, let's dwell where the cries of Calvary can be heard. And I want you to listen as if for the very first time. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I tell you the truth, this day you will be with me in paradise. Dear woman, here is your son. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I am thirsty. It is finished. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Beloved, for me, grace is never more amazing than when I look intently at the cross of Christ. And I believe the same is true for every child of God. 
There's nothing more overpowering. There's nothing more captivating to the soul than to climb Calvary's mountain with childlike attentiveness and wonder. I'll close with this quote from Max Licato. You can't go to the cross with just your head and not your heart. It doesn't work that way. Calvary's not a mental trip. It's not an intellectual exercise. It's not a cold calculation or a divine theological principle. It's a heart-splitting hour of emotion. Don't walk away from it dry-eyed and unstirred. Don't allow yourself to descend Calvary cool and collected. Please pause. Look again. Those are nails in His hands. That's God on the cross. And it's us who put Him there. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we're thankful for your holy word that teaches us, that reminds us of the passion of your Son, Jesus Christ. And I pray, Father, that we would never be so educated, that we would never be so mature, that we would never be so religious, that we cannot see your passion without tears. In the name of our risen Savior, I pray. Amen.